This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffland and Sonia Portillo. For this edition of the Oncogene Brief, we sat down with Nancy Brinker, founder of Susan G. Komen for the Cure. Thanks for joining us. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo. It can be said that Nancy Brinker embodies the global movement to end breast cancer. Nancy Brinker grew up in Peoria, Illinois, in a loving family of passionate caregivers. Her father, Marvin Goodman, a businessman with a big heart, embodied the solid values instilled in Nancy and her big sister, Susan. Her mother, Ellie Goodman, a Girl Scout leader and community activist, lit up rooms with her vibrant smile and lived her faith with daily acts of loving kindness. Nancy says that her mother was a fundraising marvel, part of the army of everyday people who supported scientists in their search for a polio vaccine in the 1950s. Moving along with her mother, Susan and Nancy witnessed the powerful chemistry of caring and action, and this shaped their lives. Nancy describes herself as a tomboy who loved horseback riding. In school, she struggled with dyslexia, compensating by keeping her nose to the grindstone. Her sister and best friend Susan balanced Nancy's academic monk routine with her fresh and funny spirit, always quick with a wisecrack and ready for adventure. After graduating from the University of Illinois, Nancy moved to Dallas, where she began her career at Neyman Marcus and went on to work in public relations and broadcasting, always elbow deep in fundraising efforts for a variety of charities. Nancy's sister Susan was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1977 and died in 1980 at the age of 36. In 1977, breast cancer was still shrouded in stigma and shame. Nobody could even say the words breast and cancer together in polite company, let alone on television news broadcasts and on the radio. With Nancy at her side, Susan endured the many indignities of cancer treatment, from the grim, soul-killing waiting rooms to the mistakes of well-meaning but misinformed doctors. By her side through three brutal years of surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, Nancy promised her sister to end the silence. A promise to one day cure breast cancer for good, but above all, a promise to do everything she could to stop the heartless progression and social stigma of the disease, and to spare others the pain and suffering that her sister Susan had endured, even if this would take the rest of her life. Nancy never dreamed she could fulfill her promises, but she promised because this was her beloved sister. Susan's death, both shocking and senseless, created a deep pain in Nancy that never fully went away. But she soon found a useful outlet for her grief and outrage. In 1981, Nancy married Norman Brinker, a dynamic restaurant magnate and entrepreneur who encouraged her as she and a small group of friends laid the foundation for the organization that would become Susan G. Komen for the Cure armed only with a shoebox filled with the names of potential donors, Nancy and her friends put their fundraising talents to work and quickly discovered a groundswell of grassroots support. Response from volunteers, supporters and families touched by breast cancer was beyond Nancy's wildest dreams. The real impact of the work these volunteers did 
hit Nancy when she herself was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1983 and underwent a double mastectomy followed by an intensive course of chemotherapy. Nancy calls this time the most terrifying chapter in her life. She also says that at the time, her mission to change the way the world talked about and treated breast cancer took on an added urgency. Unlike her sister, Nancy survived and went on to make Susan G. Komen for the Cure the most influential health charity in the country and arguably the world. An organization whose mission it is to save lives and end breast cancer forever by empowering others, ensuring quality care for all, and investing in science and medicine to find new and novel cures. A pioneering force in cost-related marketing, Susan G. Komen for the Cure has turned the pink ribbon into a symbol of hope everywhere. Each year, millions of people worldwide take part in Susan G. Komen for the Cure Race for the Cure events. To date, Susan G. Komen raised more than 2.4 billion US dollars for breast cancer research, education, and health-related services. In time, Nancy stepped away from her leadership position and served as the United States Ambassador to Hungary and as President George W. Bush's White House Chief of Protocol. In the story about her own family, Nancy says that her mother was a real force of nature who fought for women with breast cancer in Susan's memory. She was with Nancy when President Barack Obama presented her with the Presidential Medal of Freedom Award in 2009. In her own words, Nancy says that she is overwhelmed with gratitude and love for all the people who've helped her fulfill her promise to her sister, making her life an extraordinary adventure. More than 35 years ago, Nancy's love for her sister Susan sparked a promise to fight breast cancer. And today, embodied by Susan G. Komen for the Cure, that single promise has been launched into a global movement. The organization Nancy founded has a rich history in public policy and advocacy. As Nancy has often said, in order to achieve their mission, scientific progress must be complemented by sound public policy and advocacy. Through direct government action, broad, systemic, lasting change can be made in the fight against breast cancer. That's why Susan G. Komen for the Cure, as a patient advocacy organization with first-hand knowledge of how breast cancer touches local communities, engages policymakers and government as partners in their efforts to end breast cancer forever. In this interview, recorded during the annual meeting of the American Association for Cancer Research, AACR, we asked Nancy Brinker a number of questions about patient advocacy and why this is so important. We also asked her about the importance of sometimes confusing buzzwords, such as targeted therapies and personalized medicine. And we asked her about the impact of big data in the understanding of cancer and how this impacts the relationship between patients and physicians. After the break, we will be back with Nancy Brinker. And welcome back. Just before the break, we were talking about the unique life of Nancy Brinker and how her promise to her sister Susan resulted in the founding of Susan G. Komen for the Cure. Nancy, welcome to the Ongoing Brief. 
Over the last four decades, we've seen major developments and advances in the diagnosis and treatment of cancer. Among the major changes we have noticed is the rise of patient advocacy and how patient advocacy helps patients, their families, and their caregivers navigate the cancer landscape. The organization you founded has been a leading force in the development of patient advocacy and has changed the way the world talks about and treats breast cancer. Looking at what is happening today, why are patient advocacy organizations so important? And how does patient advocacy affect progress? You know, advocacy has really been responsible, patient advocacy, for all of the advances today in, in cancer research, awareness, and um, progress. And, and, and I really believe that, not just because I'm a patient advocate, but because the awareness level of this disease, though people were very frightened always over time with the word cancer, there wasn't really an engagement in it, in the solutions, in the uh, research. Really, it was so feared that people actually feared the treatment worse than, than the disease. So the fact that people have become so engaged since you know, in 1971 was a hallmark in the establishment of the war against cancer. Um, and the numbers of patient advocates have grown dramatically since the days we started Susan G. Komen and, and 10 years later in 1981. Um, but the fact that people can speak freely speak about this today, that, you know, it, it, it's dinner table conversation. And even beyond that, it's discussions of targeted therapies. People share their precision medicine ideas. They talk about immunotherapies. They talk about super diagnostics that are, you know, that are timely and, and efficient with one's time. And uh, there's such an evolution going on today versus 30 years ago or even 10 years ago. And we now have reached a point where I heard a very famous scientist say today, if this generation of young scientists cannot cure cancer in the next decade, it just can't be cured because the tools are developed, the ideas are sound. Um, going down the right pathways now and getting the body to fight this disease as a partner, getting your own immune system alive to fight this disease is astonishing. So I give a tremendous amount of, of credit, not just to my organization, Susan G. Komen, which I created in 1981 after my sister Susan died and asked me to promise to cure the disease, but all the other patient advocates I've worked with over the years, some I never got to know well, but have enormous respect for. Their ability to speak out, define the issues, define what the public was thinking, what patients were thinking, and actualize them into diagnostics, treatments, and now precision medicine really is amazing. Historically, when it comes to science and medicine, we're living in very exciting times. There's a lot of progress in diagnosis and new treatment options, but also new ways of conducting clinical trials. But with all this progress, there are so many expectations. From a patient perspective, are we moving in the right direction? Are patient expectations being met, especially when it comes to patients with metastatic cancer? So it's part of this advocacy has, has built up a, a culture of expectations that patients have and guidance and direction in the development of clinical trials. And yet 
we will hear the anecdotal, or really not the anecdotal, sometimes the scientific result of, of a patient such as President Carter. Um, and, and this is extremely exciting, uh, the really effectiveness of that immunotherapy. But it's very important that in these trials, we actually have outcomes of patients followed, good and bad examples, and what is the medium outcome one could expect. And not only that, to understand the psyche, because remember, patient advocates helped, in my mind, bring all of this to fruition, are their expectations really being met? I think there's a very, very sad and angry uh, state uh, amongst metastatic patients. And many people say, well, look, they're living so much longer. And yes, they are, and gratefully so in most cases. But in some cases, the quality of life is so compromised that they're not happy. And, and you can understand it. My sister was a metastatic patient who died very quickly, not even two years. I had breast cancer, uh, the same kind she had, actually, and because I was treated aggressively or had a different response uh, from my own biology um, in genomics. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a very unpleasant state unless you know that it can be somehow equalized out to a state, a disease state that, that is acceptable to patients for quality of life. And so it, there's some very interesting issues in this. Um, and I'm proud to see them being discussed. I think it's so healthy and so generous of people to want to enter trials because sometimes, of course, they're getting nothing out of it um, and, in fact, have meeting an unsuccessful end. But generous of people to want to add to this body of knowledge for the future generations. If you listen to the radio, watch TV, read newspapers or surf the Internet, buzzwords such as moonshot, war on cancer, targeted therapies, precision medicine, and big data are almost everywhere. How does this impact patients and their expectations? The use of buzzwords from in, in therapy and in cancer research and in diagnostics since the beginning of time when I can remember becoming aware of cancer uh, in um, the 50s when I was a child, young child, really, have, it's always been the same issue. The disease in whatever form it is in is characterized in a certain way. The progress toward developing therapies to deal with the disease are characterized. And a lot of this is to, you know, try to communicate it to a patient. What does this mean? Um, and so when they use words like moonshot or even a war on cancer or, or descriptors, people think that it has a different meaning in many people's minds. So I think while buzzwords can be very positive in a way, targeted therapies, I think that tells the patient everything you need to know. Uh, you're not being blasted with a chemotherapeutic drug or a, a radiation technique that literally uh, you know, diffuses in your entire body and destroys tissue and causes worse outcomes. It's, it's a very understandable description. Um, some of the other precision medicine the only problem with it is, is not, that not everyone will get precision medicine. What does that mean? What does it mean for the low resource person who has no access uh, to care or can't afford these sorts of therapies? And what does precision medicine mean in that circumstance? What does it mean in a well-funded patient or a healthy patient? What does it mean in a patient who's been metastatic? I think there's a lot of descriptors and understanding that needs to be 
communicated with these words. Otherwise, they become expectations that cannot always be actualized or realized, and they're confusing and add more confusion to the body of information. Um, I'd like to see uh, words that uh, become a little more predictive, such as, and getting to one of my favorite subjects, big data, um, actually qualifying what expectations might be so that people really can understand it's not just an acronym or an adjective uh, or a descriptor that's very positive. It's really in real data you can see and make the decision for yourself. After the break, we'll be back with Nancy Brinker. I'm Peter Hovland here with Sonia Portillo on location at the annual meeting of the American Association for Cancer Research. And welcome back. Before the break, you mentioned big data. How important is big data? And what do patients need to know about big data? For example, how does big data relate to the cost of care and treatment decisions? This past year, Susan G. Komen and a, and a large private foundation, the Robertson Foundation, hosted a meeting at Rockefeller University where we discussed this. And what was just the most engaging part of the meeting was when we had the data scientists, the mathematicians, the statisticians, and the oncologists in one room. And then the reaction of the patient advocates, because their issues were really very frank and simple. Privacy, uh, access to data, sharing data. These are the issues that patients need to be brought in. And then I think probably everyone in that room um, agreed on one thing. When patients finally understand the importance of their data, when they feel that they can use it, share it, um, uh, light it, light it up inspire their own decisions with their own genomics and their own biology and on based on that their future therapy and their potential outcomes this will be one of the greatest changes and in in cancer treatment research and in fact all diseases and frankly i think will drive the cost down dramatically because when you walk into a physician's office you will be armed with very accurate hopefully outcomes information and uh, able to make treatment decisions in a much more educated way and help the physician, be a partner with the physician. How does big data change the relationship between patient and doctor? And how does big data impact institutions and physicians? It's important also to say that it's the patient side is, is one side of big data. The other side that is critical are the institutions and the physicians who will be dealing with it and need to be comfortable with it. Um, it's, it's new to a lot of people using it in a treatment paradigm, but that is because also time is so limited with the patient. So a physician really wants to approach um, a certain patient the way he or she's used to doing that in a way that has created success for them. So this has all got to come together, the patients and the physicians. What are some of the key factors involving big data? So it's also important with big data that it is not just accounted for and understood and read, but that it is entered properly, that people know where did they get this data, where and, and who entered it, and what happens to my data after it's entered into it, and who is going to be handling that, and where does that become part of a larger body. So there are all these operational and uh, sort of uh, decision points that need to be made all along the way 
uh, by by oncologists and and uh, uh, mathematicians and data scientists. And finally, uh, there are many companies that have been designed and many systems out of universities, really, and insurance companies and others and the government who are compiling data. And then what are they really going to do with it? How is it all going to be used? And, and who will qualify the type of data that, and, and make it real when a study is done? Who are going to be the ultimate arbiters of what good data is and what weak or poor data and poorly handled data is? Looking at the advances made over the last decades, what, in your opinion, does the future hold? So I think in, in some, um, uh, precision medicine targeted therapies, all of the new diagnostics, and big data in, 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 in are really, really important uh, advances in, in breast cancer for, for us, the way we look at it at Susan Coleman, but also in, in general cancer therapy and the field of cancer generally. We've had so much, so much advancing uh, knowledge and information, treatment therapy, but the precision medicine part of it, and along as all of the benchmarks are observed and the expectations are realistic, we have the opportunity to have the greatest decade um, in advancement for treating this disease and surviving it. Nancy Brinker promised her dying sister Susan that she would do everything in her power to end breast cancer forever. In 1982, that promise became Susan G. Komen for the cure and launched the global breast cancer movement. Today, that organization is the world's largest grassroots network of breast cancer survivors fighting to save lives, empower people, ensure quality care for all, and energize science and medicine to innovate and to find new cures. And today, this organization has helped Nancy to keep the promise she made to her sister Susan. This promise has made a real difference in the lives of many women. It has created a real survival advantage for women with breast cancer. The interview you just heard with Nancy Brinker, founder of Susan G. Komen for the Cure, was originally recorded and broadcast during the annual meeting of the American Association for Cancer Research, AACR, held April 16th through 20th, 2016, in New Orleans, Louisiana. We know that based on this interview, you may have questions. So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. We'll post as many answers as we can on our website, oncuisine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. Thank you all, and thanks for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hovland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Ongresin Brief. The Ongresin Brief was produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hoffland, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and InPress Media Group. Support for the Ongresin Brief comes from our listeners and commercial underwriters. For more information about underwriting options, contact Sean Mayer at 949-923-1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. 
The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and informational purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.